You're listening to The Good GP, the podcast for busy GPs. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Good GP. My name is Christina and today I'm joined once again by Dr. Ben Kroon to have a chat about polycystic ovary syndrome. Welcome back, Ben, and thanks so much for giving up some more time to chat about this topic. Christina, my pleasure. So Ben, we mentioned last time you're an obstetrician and gynecologist at Eve Health and Queensland Fertility Group in Brisbane. And you know, you have a subspecialized interest in fertility and reproductive endocrinology. And on the last episode, we started off our chat about PCOS talking around the workup for it and some of the specifics around diagnostics. But today we're meeting up again to go a little bit further into some of the principles around managing PCOS. So let's get into it. Let's talk about the overarching principles when it comes to management. Thanks, Christina. I think obviously making a diagnosis can be tricky as we discussed. Once a diagnosis is made, Managing whatever the presenting problem is, is what happens from my end of things, you know, and I guess maybe the same with you, with GPs. So if the problem is an acne or hirsutism, that's one thing. If the problem is maybe fertility, that's another thing. So uh, if it's irregular cycles, that's another thing. So I think focusing on what that actual problem is. So I think you have to be really quite goal-focused in that regard. But then at the same time, screen for complications. And that screening for complications is a long-term thing. And from a GP point of view, you guys are great at that sort of thing. And I think that's a really important role for the GP because for us, they come to us for one thing. We try to touch on all the other things, but often we're getting really deeply into whatever that one presenting problem is. Ben, let's talk about lifestyle advice first of all. What things do you generally talk about with women, you know, in your practice? From my point of view, again, it really depends on what the particular problem is the woman has. So often, as you know, weight is a problem. And when I mentioned before screening for complications what I'm thinking about is the cardiovascular complications the hypertension the diabetes as well as screening for things like the increased risk of endometrial cancer the increased risk for depression and anxiety and body image issues and the psychosexual dysfunction that comes along with this syndrome and I think GPs are very well placed to to screen for all of those things. And I'll just give you my take on it. And please interrupt me if you do things differently, because I, I'm very conscious that the reality is that I see people for small hunks of care around their specific problems, um, whereas you have the long-term interactions with them. So uh, from a diabetes point of view, I think clearly if you've got a, a woman with slim PCOS who has no other risk factors, so if she's slim, she's Caucasian, then yeah, she probably does have an increased risk of PCOS. PCOS and an increased risk of gestational diabetes over and above a woman of the same BMI who does not have PCOS, but her baseline risk is not hugely high. So I'd do a fasting glucose on everybody at the beginning or or a fasting in an HbA1c, I guess. But I'd really leave the glucose tolerance test for those women who are either have a BMI greater than 25 or who are of ethnicities where there is a higher risk. So, for example, Asian ethnicity. So, really, those high-risk women. And once you've done that screening test, again, the, the ongoing screening for those complications or screening for diabetes every couple of years, I think, would be what I'd recommend. But more frequently, I guess, if they're very high risk, hypertension, do a blood pressure every year, and same with cardiovascular disease. At uh, when you first diagnose somebody, a full lipid screen 
of course, but you're not going to do it every year on a, on a slim Caucasian woman uh, with PCOS who might just have some ovulatory dysfunction. But if you've got a higher risk woman, then yes, probably every year or every couple of years, that's something that you want to screen for. One of the things that we are very conscious of is the endometrial cancer risk and the endometrial hyperplasia risk, which occurs in earlier age than in the um, in women without PCOS. And this is essentially because women with PCOS have unopposed estrogen, prolonged unopposed estrogen without having periods. Now, women don't really need to have periods. So, you know, when you're talking, I know everyone uh, will say to people, hey, listen, you can be on the pill for months and months and months and you don't need a period. And that's absolutely true. But that's only because the pill contains progestogens, so as being protective of the endometrium. Whereas when you're someone with PCOS, you're having months and months potentially at a time where you've just got unopposed low level of estrogen with no progesterone and no period. And so there's not really a screening test per se, but I suppose from a GP point of view, just being aware that women should be having regular periods. And if they're not, they probably need something to help protect the endometrium and to give them a regular bleed and you know if they are having a scan looking out for a thickened endometrium is is important what else in terms of screening and management well again gps are so good at this i know is screening for that depression and anxiety and discussing psychosexual dysfunction and body image things and they're things that you're much better at than we are i'm, I'm sure ben Let's come back to the endometrial hyperplasia. And you mentioned that sort of difference between being on the pill and skipping periods. And actually, that's very different to having oligomenorrhea or amenorrhea where you're, you know, not having a period physiologically and, you know, you've got that unopposed estrogen. So you mentioned sort of having to protect, I guess, the endometrium for that. And that probably is a nice segue into pharmacological interventions. So did you want to talk a little bit about when to use pharmacological interventions? When are they indicated? And what are we actually aiming to achieve with that? Yes, I just realized when you asked that question, that I don't think I actually answered your last question. <laughs> so pharmacological management should always, well, usually come after lifestyle advice. <laughs> so, so I think that Many women have problems with weight associated with PCOS, and so clearly lifestyle advice would be something that would come before the pharmacological management in most situations. So if someone has excessive weight, assisting with weight, weight loss, referral to a nutritionist, discussion about an exercise program, you know, losing 5 to 10% of weight over six months is a real win, you know, and that can make a big difference and, and certainly reduce your need for pharmacological intervention and the need for the pill or the need for metformin. But I think where the pharmacological intervention comes in, so with respect to hyperplasia, which we are talking about before, is, you know, the pill is an amazing drug for PCOS from my point of view and uh, I think can really be used even in the adolescence if you, if you feel you need to, but certainly for any woman with prolonged irregular cycles and those often come with quite heavy bleeding and sometimes quite painful bleeding related to those heavy periods, I think has a great role there because it allows um, menstrual regularity and it allows protection of the endometrium. So I really think someone who comes in with cycle irregularity and that's frustrating them, you know, using the pill in that setting is good. And I think that we need to remember that the pill 
you don't need to jump straight to a, the heavy pills, the ones, the 35 microgram pills with the cyproter and acetate. You know, remember, I think in the past, there's been a, a trend to put everyone on Brenda or Diane or whichever brand you want to use, but that's not the, you know, they, those have a high risk of, of clots and really they're not your first line. You go for a 20 microgram or 30 microgram low dose oral contraceptive pill and you can run them together for a few months, no problem. Uh, so that's where I would use that. And remember, of course, that the pill does a great job at mopping up all the the androgens. So increasing the sex hormone binding globulin, and that mops up the androgens and decreases acne and decreases hirsutism. And so, again, for me, that would be, you know, after lifestyle advice would be a first line intervention for those problems. And along with, you know, for people who are having problems, especially with the hirsutism, putting them on the pill, but reminding them, don't expect this just going to work in a month because that's not how the hair growth cycle works. They would need to be on it for at least a good six months and at the same time plucking or waxing or shaving or whatever they use for, for their hair growth. And only after they hadn't worked, you know, after six months, maybe then look at other anti-androgens if that was what was required. And what about for women who might not want to use or, you know, the oral contraceptive pill might be contraindicated? You you touched on blood clots, maybe women who have migraine with aura or other personal or family history that stops them from using the oral contraceptive pill. What other things could be considered in that instance? Yeah, well, it depends on exactly what it is that they're asking for. And sometimes those women, again, going back to that lifestyle advice, if they can get their weight down and achieve cycle regularity and achieve control of their hirsutism or acne in that way, then that would be ideal. Obviously, metformin can be added. Some people who are really not achieving the, the gains that they want just being on the pill. And certainly in those women, in, in, in any women with PCOS who are at high risk for the metabolic syndrome, so those with a BMI over 25 and who really are not are struggling with the weight loss, I use metformin quite freely. Um, obviously, sometimes it's not tolerated so well, but um, it's a great drug so long as it's introduced slowly. So I always use the, the slow-release preparation. I give it at nighttime with a meal and just started 500 milligrams at nighttime sit on that dose for a week or so and then only when that's been tolerated well then increase it again to a thousand milligrams and then probably up to about 1500 milligrams but again even if they can only tolerate a smaller amount that's fine because there is evidence that improves things from a from a metabolic point of view it's it may reduce their weight gain sometimes a kilo or two of weight loss can be associated with it so i think it's a good drug i guess your question about the pill and people that don't tolerate it so I would get quite a few referrals for that particular discussion. And again, it very much depends on what they want. Because if you've got someone who's completely amenorrheic or very, very oligomenorrheic, they are at risk of endometrial hyperplasia. So I would be wanting a monthly bleed. And so I would sometimes use progestogens for two weeks of the month or consider a Mirena for endometrial protection. But there are side effects with that, and it's not a perfect drug. The pill's a perfect drug for PCOS, whereas, whereas progestogens are not, because, of course, they you know they do have some androgenic effects. The Mirena and any progestogen does give an increased greasiness of the skin, some increase in acne. There can be some mood disturbance. So, unfortunately, for those people who don't tolerate the pill, then the other options do have some limitations. 
Yeah, okay. But potentially a worthwhile discussion for for some women, you know, I guess some of those progesterone-only contraceptives, especially if women, you know, are needing a contraception and are unable to take the combined pill because of, you know, maybe a contraindication or something. Sometimes those can be helpful. And, you know, you mentioned about giving some progesterone cyclically not so much for the, well, not for contraceptive. That's not a contraceptive. Definitely not, no. But, you know, but from a purely from the endometrial hyperplasia, the endometrial protection. You mentioned monthly. So let's say someone who doesn't need contraception and they, they've not tolerated the IUD. I mean, we see these women all the time. They can't take the pill. They didn't tolerate the IUD, you know, and then for those women, you know, you might trial doing some cyclical progesterone. But how often would you say that they do? Is it monthly? They You should be saying, yep, monthly, or is it sort of second monthly or quarterly what would you normally recommend in that situation I don't think we really have good evidence uh, regarding this and I I mean I, I tend to give it monthly but I have to say that not that many people really like that option but I have to say I give it monthly listen I don't know I really am not often since people who have already tried that I have to say so I feel like more often than not by the time people are talking about hyperplasia risk reduction they are quite often already at that point they're saying hmm this person's had quite a long time of irregular cycles and they've got really heavy periods and they've got a thickened endometrium and at that point it's not unreasonable to refer on for, for a papel or a hysteroscopy just to exclude hyperplasia before they go on to that kind of management. I'm not yeah. saying that it has to be done. Of course, I you know, always leave that to, to the referring GP to see what they think. But, but often those people will have already had a long history of irregular cycles before they front up for that and, and may well need some initial screening before they are put onto a um, regular bleeds with a with a progestion although you know not not necessarily so but yeah I think once a month is fine once every couple of months is also reasonable you know you raise a good point with that I mean it is something that I'm always hyper aware of we always are hyper aware of things that we've had experience with or seeing sort of the worst things happen you know and when I did some ONG training before I came out to general practice that was something that I um, saw someone quite a young woman who had this long history of amenorrhea and and she did have endometrial hyperplasia at quite a young age and so you know I guess that's something that's stuck in my head so I think that that's you know a good point to raise in terms of making sure that we're mindful of that and referring appropriately for for further investigations where that's needed. You know, you mentioned about that lifestyle advice. Let's go back there for a minute in terms of some of the other things we see, specifically around the weight. We're often talking to women about healthy eating and exercise for their health. Is there any particular evidence in this area, like in terms of one diet above another, what do we do with women who sort of are in a healthy weight range? Do we still talk to them about these sorts of lifestyle interventions? What's your sort of general approach to these? It's really hard, <laughs> as you know. <laughs> uh, it is very difficult. Um, and I think that there is no best diet. So people will often come in having Googled and say, oh, I need to do this diet or that diet. And it's all, there's no good evidence about which is the best diet. And I think that particularly because you'll have multiple different ethnicities coming in with this condition, I think the diet that people are on has to just be specific to what fits with them and their life and their uh, their goals and their ethnicity and so on. And I would always involve a um, nutritionist because I really think they're best place to give advice 
I think that it is worthwhile at least touching on it with those normal, those women with a normal BMI and just saying, hey, listen, you see how your cycle is currently slightly out of whack. Not terrible, but slightly out of whack. Well, you know, just be cautious about the BMI side of things because it could disappear entirely if you put on 10 kilos. And, and it's useful just that they know that there is an association with, with their weight uh, and their menstrual irregularity and other symptoms that they're having. I think that when people are trying to lose weight, the general principle is they, you know, need an energy deficit. And if you, you know, I think diets that give them potentially around a 30% energy deficit is supposed to be good. Now, can I work that out, what that entails for an individual? I have no idea. <laughs> it's not my area. So I would definitely refer to a nutritionist. But they don't just need to see that nutritionist once. They need to have someone who's going to be engaged and who's going to review them on a semi-regular basis to make sure they're not slipping up on their habits. And I think involving a psychologist is a good idea because there are all those other behavioral issues that go along with it. And if they've got some good behavioral management in terms of goal setting and stimulus control and slower eating behavior and all those kind of behavioral things that are critical here, it is going to have some additional benefit over just saying, hey, listen, you need to go out and exercise and you need to eat better. And yeah, I really think that that can help them. And from an exercise point of view, most people just don't exercise enough. It's, uh, and I think when we give people advice, we have to accept that people just think about going out and going to the gym, which is impossible for anyone. Just It's very hard to take someone who doesn't do that stuff and say, you need to go to the gym five times a week. It, it isn't going to happen. But involve their activities of daily living and say, well, listen, you're doing some vacuum cleaning. Now, listen, if you're moving around and you're doing that at moderately high intensity and sweating a little bit while you're doing it, that counts. That's exercise. You know, if you're walking your kids to school, that's exercise. That's great. People need to be doing five times a week, half an hour. I don't know what you advise people, but I, I always say five yeah. times a week, 30 minutes of moderate intensity exercise just to keep themselves alive. <laughs> you know, that's what everyone should be doing. Now, if you do more and you do some high intensity exercise, then that's great. And maybe you can reduce that moderate intensity exercise, but that's what everyone should be doing. If they're actually trying to lose weight, you know, that should probably be up around 50 minutes, five times a week to lose weight. That's a big change for a lot of people. Yeah. And I think you raise a good point. It's got to be achievable and it's got to be sustainable too. You've got to find something that actually works for you. Absolutely. And they really need to include, you know, do an exercise diary where they include their chores as long as they're done at a reasonable, you know, level of intensity. They include their walk into work. They include their, you know, their travel, their, all those things. Lots of people use Fitbits, try to get to those 10,000 steps a day. All those kind of activities of daily living have to be included because at least that gives them a, a basis to go, at least I'm doing something. Oh, I just need to do some more on top of that. Great. Okay. So, you know, I think we could keep talking about this all day, Ben, but we better wrap it up soon. I wanted to just ask the last question. Where do you send your patients to have a look when it comes to resources? Because I think this is always a, a good thing to be able to direct people that the internet is a wealth of information and women can get on and Google a lot of things and come up with some good things and some not so good things. And I'm all for our patients being informed, but I think a very important part of our role is making sure we direct them to the right place to get that information. So where do you send your patients to have a look when it comes to resources? Uh, Jean Hale's website. 
is no question the best resource that I've found. Yeah, excellent. And I mean, I hope that most of our listeners would be aware of that website. I'd give it a shout out too. It's got great information for patients, but there's also some great health professional tools there. And there's specific ones on a whole heap of um, women's health topics, including PCOS, which gives a good framework. And the other one I wanted to mention as well, Ben, for GPs is Monash University also has a PCOS GP tool. So it's specific for GPs. I would encourage listeners to um, jump on that. Just Google Monash University PCOS GP tool. I have no affiliation with either of those things. So no conflict of interest to declare. They're just things that I find helpful in my own practice. They've got uh, the, the head researcher for the international guidelines was a Monash based researcher. So they will have great, great tools, I'm sure. Yeah, that's right. Excellent. Well, Ben, we should probably finish it up there, but thank you so much for giving up your time. I really appreciate it. And I've really thoroughly enjoyed these chats and I hope that our listeners get something out of it too. Thanks so much, Christine. 